Hello and welcome to Gendering Geopolitics, my short series where I have quick 10-minute conversations with women who are doing amazing work around the world. My name is Emily Prey and I'm a senior analyst at the New Lines Institute in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm speaking with Esther Dingemans, the founding director of the McWeggie Foundation and the executive director of the Global Survivors Fund about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining me, Esther. Thank you very much, Emily, for having me. So you understand better than most the gendered impacts of war with your work. Can you explain what women have gone through in Ukraine, in Russian-occupied areas, especially in 2015, and how they experience war and conflict at the hands of Russian-backed forces? Yes, um, absolutely. Well, as you know, uh, Emily, women in war suffer a great deal and uh, much more actually than we uh, usually hear about. So thank you, first of all, for drawing attention uh, to that. Um, perhaps let me start saying that the Mugwege Foundation works with survivors of conflict-related sexual violence around the world, but also in Ukraine. And um, I should say that I would have really uh, liked or preferred that one of the survivors of conflict-related sexual violence in Ukraine could have spoken here today uh, for themselves. Uh, because among the survivors, there are uh, great human rights defenders. But the situation, unfortunately, that they find themselves in right now uh, doesn't allow that at all. It's way too dangerous. And then it's in itself, of course, that uh, that says a lot. But uh, yes, when it comes to the conflict, which started 2014, uh, yes, sexual violence was really committed at quite a big scale uh, in the occupied territories. Um, by separatists supported uh, by Russian forces, and particularly in the unlawful detention centers. And perhaps I can give you a little bit of a, a picture of, of what that uh, looked like. So uh, sexual violence was used in those centers, uh, large of a lot to force confessions during interrogations, but also uh, to get ransoms. Uh, the different types of sexual violence that were used, well, it ranges from forced nudity, to assault, to rape, to gang rape, also sexualized torture. And like I said, often uh, used during uh, interrogations. But what also happened is what, was that the detainees uh, were threatened that their uh, family members would also be raped. So you can imagine uh, this situation, what an immense trauma, profound trauma really this has caused. Uh, and with that, I want to say that 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 is not that is not a coincidence. That's deliberate, uh, because when sexual violence is used as a weapon of war, as it was in the detention centers, uh, it's more than just a technique to to get information or to force confessions. It is really also about causing deliberate harm, and not just to that individual, but also to uh, her or sometimes his as well, because of course it also involves men, uh, their family members, and um, Broadly speaking, I think to install fear in the entire community and in the, in the case of Ukraine, really it was about breaking the resistance. It's really absolutely horrific. And thank you so much for describing um, what the risks that, that people, especially women, are facing now. And so what are some of the risks now in 2022 that Ukrainians, Ukrainian women, LGBTQ, uh, the LGBTQ community, and people like human rights activists, what risks are they facing today? Well, the risks are many, the many and they're, they're, they're real. 
um, I think the fact that this type of violence was used in 2014 and beyond, uh, that in itself is a warning sign. So it may happen again. It's actually very likely that it will happen again. And with the, the scale of the current invasion, I think, um, uh, yeah, the scope of sexual violence might actually be much larger than what we saw in 2014 and, and beyond. Um, it's really possible that women's uh, bodies will be used as a battlefield, but that indeed also includes uh, other persons uh, of LGBTI and minority groups and human rights defenders. Um, what is more, Emily, I think important to mention is that the survivors that have already, well, the, the, the women and the men that have, but especially the women that have faced sexual violence at the onset of the conflict in Ukraine, some of them have been really quite outspoken. So they've publicly denounced the perpetrators. They've been raising awareness in the communities with the government. They've been advocating for investigations. They have been uh, advocating for reparations. Um, and they've been quite public and visible. And the Mugweka Foundation and the Global Survivors Fund as well, they support them in, in this cause. And what we see now currently is that they are at imminent risk um, of reprisal. And um, that's not only for victim activists, but that's, I think, for human rights defenders more generally. So what should the U.S. and NATO allies be doing to prevent... Uh, conflict-related sexual violence, and why should this be a priority for them? Good question. Well, it's 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 not a, it's it's challenging. I think the uh, the U.S. and NATO, but the international community more broadly, actually, first and foremost, they need to be aware that sexual violence will be used very likely and uh, possibly at a large scale. So it's this acknowledgement of the facts. Um, and then I think whenever possible in negotiations, in diplomatic relations, specific reference also needs to be made to, made to the use of sexual violence uh, in this way. Uh, it's a war crime and uh, it needs to be very clear that it will be treated as such with no impunity. Now, NATO has actually a, a policy that they adopted a few years ago. It's a policy on the prevention uh, and response to conflict-related sexual violence, which has procedures for monitoring and for, for investigation, reporting. And I think when in their support to the, to the, or the upcoming support to the border countries, it's really the time for them to implement uh, that policy. But I think another very important point to mention, and that is the care for, for victims. Um, and that is potentially to the US, but also to other countries in providing support to those same border countries, be really prepared for a wave of people coming uh, that direction, traumatized at risk for re-traumatization. Uh, and victims of sexual violence, they may not talk about it, uh, what they've gone through in first instance. Uh, the climate really needs to be conducive uh, to them speaking out about this and that is what we can prepare right now and what I mean I think is that it is when we're setting up the response systems and supporting the border countries and doing so it's not only about infrastructure and systems actually it is really also about quality holistic care uh, particularly for for traumatized people including victims of sexual violence so when loading the planes with logistic support 
we also need to really think about care and what is needed for that that needs to be mobilized in the countries but if need be also with uh, external expertise um, there's one thing actually that that comes to mind and that is not it's it is it is direct it's still related to conflict related sexual violence and that is something that we've heard of course uh, that men between 16 and 60 may not be uh, allowed to leave ukraine and uh, it wouldn't be the first time that uh, women and children are fleeing on their own but it is really a risk factor for another type of gender-based violence and that is uh, sexual exploitation abuse but also the risk of trafficking um, and i think for that we also need to be prepared and prevented by putting the putting the systems in place and not forgetting about that I feel like when we talk about sexual violence in conflict, at least over in recent conflicts over the last 20 years, it's often in non-European contexts. And I'm thinking of Ethiopia or the DRC or Iraq or Syria. Why is it so important to highlight that sexual violence, um, the sexual violence and torture carried out by Russian-backed forces in its long-running conflict with Ukraine? Mm. Well, sexual violence, sexual violence is used all around the world right now, even in many different conflicts um, and is used as this method of, of warfare. And I think what we see is that the patterns uh, are the same. The consequences are the same, uh, the same impunity as well. And in fact, in Europe, we don't really have a much better track record in preventing and responding to this type of violence. If we just go back a little bit further into the recent uh, history and we look at former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, sexual violence was used on a massive scale. Uh, for example, in the infamous so-called rape camps in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, but what is important, I think, in this, in learning our lessons, is that this type of violence was hardly talked about in the aftermath of the war in former Yugoslavia. Uh, for years and years, victims really felt it was not safe and did not receive uh, any support or hardly any support. So the difference this time is that the warning signs are there. Uh, we can't look away. This should really not be approached from an ad hoc or after the facts perspective. We need to be on the ball, really, to prevent, to stop, to support survivors, investigate and to punish. And perhaps the last comment I would like to make here is that in doing that successfully this time, uh, we need to learn from those contexts. And what is really paramount in this is that we listen to survivors, not just to the stories, not to just to their uh, the horrific experiences that they have, but especially seriously considering their viewpoints in what needs to happen uh, to to do all of this, to prevent and to respond appropriately. Esther, I want to thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on Gender and Geopolitics to talk about this important issue of uh, sexual violence in conflict, especially relating to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many thanks, Emily, for this opportunity.